Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast with me, Simon Walters, assistant editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. And coming up, is Joe Swinson's campaign coming off the rails? The leaders' TV debate. I've heard opposing views from Labour's Barry Gardner and the Tories' Nadim Zahawi on who won. And Sir Anthony Selden, Britain's leading political biographer, sheds light on his new book about Theresa May's time in number 10. And former Lib Dem MP and royal author Norman Baker reveals what he thinks about Prince Andrew. And don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderorder at dailymail.co.uk. And we'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. So according to one pollster, Boris Johnson was the victor in last night's TV debate. Who do you think really won, Amanda? I think Boris did, Simon. I actually thought that he was a little bit more restrained than he usually is. He wasn't. He didn't use um, quite so many words that people don't understand. And he, he just had one message, and that's Brexit. I'm going to deliver Brexit. And for people like us um, who watched the whole thing, we have to remember he was just... The whole point of this is to have one message coming out, and that's his Brexit message, which will be put on all TV shows that night, the next morning, and all the rest of it. He did that brilliantly. And he didn't slip up. He didn't goof. Mm, that's true. And he, it, you're right in saying, I think it was nine times when Jeremy Corbyn did not say whether he he was actually pro-Brexit or pro-Remain. Um, but but I think against that, I, I, th- I, think, um, I think Corbyn did better than most people expected. I think most people thought even if he managed to get on stage and not fall over his shoelaces, <laughs> it would be something. But I, th- I think he was um, I think he was quite cogent. He was quite calm. And while Boris may have won the exchanges on Brexit, I think it was a much closer matter on the NHS. And the Tories get cross about this every time that Corbyn says, you're going to sell the NHS off Which to, is to, nonsense. To, to, to Donald Trump. But, but, non- but nonetheless, it's, an att- it's the best attack line they've got. And, and and I think they're going to stick with it. Yeah, it is. I, I understand why they're doing it. Um, we all know it's completely untrue. But it, what's interesting is that for the first time that I can remember, we have a conservative um, prime minister or conservative leader who is actually a head of labour on the NHS in some polls. So it's not having the cut through that he thinks it is. Mm. But he was, Corbyn was... Corbyn was very good last night. You know, he was very calm. He didn't. He didn't. Um, he didn't lose his temper. Um, um, but crikey, those glasses, Simon! I was just so agitated the whole time, just looking at him. I just wanted to straighten them up. I wanted to take them off and, and give him a good old clean up. And you know what it reminded me of was um, was the old Nixon JFK debate in which Nixon lost it because he kept sweating, and. This, I just, I was so distracted by his glasses that I could hardly hear what he was saying. And I don't think I was alone. No. And by the way, your glasses are crooked at the moment. <laughs> and then, I mean, I, I mean, and also Boris kept getting ticked off by uh, Julie Etchingham for overrunning his time. Corbyn kept his answers quite within, within schedule. Boris was kind of 10 seconds over every time. And I think just once or twice it felt like he was gabbling out the end of his answers. But how do you think Julie Etchingham handled it? I thought she was brilliant. She was absolutely brilliant. She did not impose herself. Um, she was quite strict 
but without look feeling like a matron. Um, the only criticism I would have of her is she was wearing some very bizarre backless shoes, which um, I know I get easily distracted in these debates, but it distracted me. Mm. And I think it was interesting, the exchanges on anti-Semitism. Of course, this is one of the weak areas for Jeremy Corbyn. And and he actually gave quite a strong answer uh, on, on that point. But I did notice... When he referred to another question about Prince Andrew and he talked about Jeffrey Epstein, he pronounced the Epstein Epstein. He mm. gave it a very Jewish pronunciation. It very. didn't mean much to me. But uh, David Badil, the, the Jewish comedian, and other Jewish writers and commentators picked up on it and said that Corbyn had kind of subliminally given away some kind of anti-Semitic strain there, which I thought was fascinating. You would have thought that with all the prep these guys would have done for those um, for those debates, you know, they spent hours and hours, days and days. The one thing that they would have um, told Corbyn's people would have said, "There's you've got to be so convincing about anti-Semitism. And his answers were good in the round, but then he slips up and shows his true face. The Conservative industry minister, Nadim Zahawi, told me why he thinks Boris the boxer from the blue corner had Jezza on the ropes. It is close, and this is a tough election. No one has ever said otherwise, including Boris Johnson. Um, We didn't want this election to happen. Um, We needed it to unblock the blockage in Parliament because otherwise we're going to just keep going round, more delay, more dither. Uh, We need nine more seats to have a working majority to deliver this. But it is tough. You're absolutely right. This is not going to be easy. Boris never wanted this election, but he's going to the country because we need... 2020 to be about delivering Brexit and then investing in our public services. Were you surprised that Corbyn uh, ran him quite close on a whole series of issues? Well, Corbyn um, was succinct, but also his whole narrative was based on a big fat lie, which is that the NHS will be privatised. It's something that Labour's run before you know every election. Do you remember the you know, 24 hours to save our NHS from the Tories? Now, we've had stewardship of the NHS for far longer than Labour Party in, in government. And every time we've done that, we've invested in the NHS. But if you look at the detail of the poll, I think the most important question was, who do you see as more prime ministerial? And Boris beat him 2-1 to one on that. Because actually people may have views about people, and there was a question about sort of truth and honesty in politics and other stuff. The real question is, do they see that person as prime minister? And Boris won that hands down. Is that why Boris kept asking over and over again about Brexit? From your polling background, what was he doing there? What's the tactic there? So in any campaign, what a pollster would advise is that you need to chime with the what is going on in in people's minds, in their heads. If they're walking through the polling station on polling day, on the 12th of December, and you have been able to define that question in their mind, then you are much more likely to win. And the question has to be, are you going to deliver Brexit? So what was going on there was that the Boris asked it nine times. What was going on there? He doesn't mind droning on, boring on about it, but that is his attempt to try and define the question of this election so that when they go into the voting booth, that's what they're thinking of, not not other issues. That's exactly right. And I think he will, you'll hear him say over and over again, because that's what I'm hearing as well on the doorstep, is that 
you know, who's going to deliver Brexit in 2020? Are we going to have another year of dither and delay to referendum, possibly with another one for, for Scotland to separate from the Union under Labour? Or will they be thinking about 2020? You know, if you close your eyes, is what I've been saying to people on the doorstep, and you think about the first week of January, do you want to open your eyes and have two referenda and Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, or do you want Boris delivering Brexit and then investing in public services? The other real gift that Boris has, even under pressure, even when things were really tough, uh, the toughest moments, in fact, in Parliament and now in the campaign, Boris can always manage a smile and positivity. That is an amazing gift in politics. Mm. Because I, I would have thought, as a Conservative minister in his government, you must have felt slightly uncomfortable that when the issue of truthfulness came up and Boris was answering, people in the audience were tittering. They were uh, tittering, but you've got to remember the studio audience made up of Labour supporters and Liberal Democrat supporters, as well as Conservatives. So they were bound to have been primed by their parties to make sure they give Boris you know, a, a tough time or, or, or sort of not laugh at his jokes and laugh at the stuff that would make him uncomfortable. The more important of our audience is at home. People watching that debate, do they look at that image and think, that I want that person to be in number 10, being my prime minister, or do I want Jeremy Corbyn? I think last night Boris won that two to one. I'm not quite sure I like the idea of closing my eyes and opening them and seeing Boris next to me. Um, but <laughs> um, but what is surprising in that the, that interview is that Boris is two to one as the person that people would most want to be prime minister. I didn't think he got that edge last night. No, he didn't. But I think that's what's fascinating about this contest, that... that Boris wins nearly nearly all the personal ratings with Corbyn. He wins by a mile, but on the on purely on the basis of the debate, the pollsters had it pretty even. Pretty even, yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe if if there's some comfort the Conservatives will take from that, it's that even on the basis of the debate, it was an equal debate. That notwithstanding that, people still have a strong preference for Boris. The thing that also struck me just watching them is that. There's a chasm between them, a generational chasm. Um, and and Boris looks modern and fresh and a bit like Tony Blair did when he first appeared, you know, something that's quite new. And, and Jeremy Corbyn looks very tired. I mean, he looks very old-fashioned, um, even though he had his beard trimmed and his hair cut. I just thought you're looking at the two men and you're thinking one's kind of the present past and one is the present future. Mm. Can I can I just speak up here just for a moment for the older man? Um, well, there's a whole. There, You're there, younger than Corbyn is. <laughs> yes, a few days. Uh, there's a lot of older older leaders are all the rage now. Vince Cable was very successful. Well, Donald Trump's no spring chicken. There's a lot of older leaders, and um, not everyone would agree that Tony Blair is, is an example of. Why we should have young leaders, Amanda? Well, I just think I just think Corbyn looks tired, um, and and he just you know it's a really tough job being prime minister, and I'm not sure some guy who I think all the allotment stuff doesn't help him either, because every time I think of him, you know, when when he's not in the dis, uh, this dispatch box, I think of him growing leeks, you know, I just think pottering around like some old dodger. I just think it's just that's just my image. Just, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> Labour frontbencher Barry Gardner explained why, in his view, Corbyn from the red corner ran rings round Johnson. I think he won it on the issue of personal integrity. And I think it was the, the key point where the Prime Minister simply looked shady. 
Uh, he was unable to respond to the questions about the lies that he'd told, uh, whether that was over a border down the RHC or when Jeremy challenged him on the issue of the 40 hospitals and said, look, it's only six and they're only being reconditioned. They're not 40 new hospitals. So I, I think that was the moment that the public saw the mask slip. And I think that is a really important thing because if you can't have the trust of the public, then you're not going to get their vote. They, they both came under fire over that because there was laughter when, when Boris Johnson was asked about his reputation for truthfulness. But there was also laughter when, when, when Jeremy Corbyn was asked about Brexit. And, and people didn't seem to trust him on that. Well, look, people are used, so used to politicians like Boris Johnson saying, it's all about me, it's all about me. And, and what Jeremy was saying about Brexit is, look, it's not about my what I want here. I, I've told you what I wanted before. I, I wanted to remain and reform. But ultimately, I'm a Democrat. And therefore, we go back to the public with a leave option and a remain option. And now it's down to you. It's what you, the public, want. And that's what we promise will then be implemented. But, but in not answering nine times whether whether he, he would he would back remain or brexit is, is, isn't that an issue that you've got to deal with more firmly look it's very difficult to to say what you're going to do until you've negotiated the deal that's the first obvious response um but actually as i say i think ultimately what we're trying to convey to the public as a political party is look we're not trying to impose our will on the public what we're trying to do is to enable the public to have its will achieved. And Jeremy Corbyn made a great play of trying to attack Boris Johnson on the NHS. But the, the, these lines that Jeremy Corbyn keeps coming out with about that Boris is going to sell it to the Americans, is that really true? Look, you saw the dispatches programme, I'm sure. Uh, it was very clear that there have been 11 separate meetings between UK government officials and US officials and big pharmaceutical companies in the US. Um, it does not take 11 meetings and all those pages of redacted text that you saw him produce last night to say, sorry guys, we're not going to talk about this. They have been talking about it, that's the truth. And if you look at the negotiating text uh, for the American side, it's very clear um, that they want full market access into our health service, um, and it's very clear that the cost of that would increase the drugs bill in the NHS from £18 billion a year to 45. That's two and a half times. Now, what that does is it, it rips the guts out of the core funding of the NHS. If you've got to, to have that extra uh, money coming out of the NHS, it's coming out from other areas. It's coming out from the elective surgery, it's coming out from trauma care, it's coming out from A&Es, it's coming out from beds, it's coming out from paying doctors and nurses. And, and that's why we are so clear that having this in a trade deal with America would be so damaging. But there's no denying that in, in most of the opinion polls, Labour, and particularly Corbyn, is a long way behind Boris Johnson at the moment. Is it, isn't it the fact that in this TV debate, Corbyn really had to deliver a knockout blow to give him any chance to win the election, and he just didn't do that? Well, look, I think what you saw is the re immediate response, and it's on the front page of The Times today. Neck and neck, 51 to 49. That's exactly the sort of margins that I like to be fighting an election on. Coming from behind, yes, you're right, but boy, we're going to overtake and we're going to get past that winning post first. Yeah, I think it was a bit 
uh, Rich, to call Boris shady. It's not the kind of terms you should be using about people. No, but I, I, I think um, they're behind in the polls. Um, attack politics uh, may not be very popular with public opinion, but it's what elections nearly always come down to, negative campaigning. And the negative line that Labour is going to pursue is that Boris Johnson is untrustworthy, call it what you will, yeah. and they're going to repeat that. And they just want to keep saying that he's going to sell off the NHS, he's not trustworthy, they allude to his character and his personal life. It's just they're constantly poking at, they're picking at that scab, aren't they? Yeah, and, and you know, both sides play, play it rough and the, the, the Tories will attack Corbyn in similar strong terms, whether it's over his age or his views on defence. Um, elections are like that. Um, they tend to get dirty. Well, the audience in the TV debate seemed amused by various answers the candidates gave. This was the response to Jeremy Corbyn's answer on Brexit. I've made the position clear. We will have a referendum, we will have negotiation, and we will abide by that result. The audience were equally tickled by Boris Johnson's answer to a question on honesty in politics. Does the truth matter in this election? I think it does. And I've, I think it's very important. I think it's very important to hear from... I've been very clear about the deal that I've done. And this was the response to Mr Corbyn's plans for a four-day week for workers. It is about reducing the working week all across the economy, paid for by productivity increases all across. Britain works longer, <laughs> longer than most... But... I mean, I think they were. I think they're extraordinary moments in the in the debate because we're used to politicians debating. What we're not used to is seeing two leaders debating, and then with a with a very lively studio audience, occasionally just bursting into guffaws of life, laughter at their answers, and. Um, they both looked had good reason to be pretty uncomfortable more than once, didn't they, Amanda? It's very strange. And I think it's quite off-putting also if you're up there trying to sell your party, trying to win over the electorate, to have people mock you. Um, and, it, I mean, it sounded almost like canned laughter. It was so ridiculous. <laughs> it was like carry on up the Khyber. And they weren't even saying anything funny. But I think th I think they laughed at exactly the right oh, moments. Yeah, they did. When Corbyn's struggling to give it up, we all know his position on Brexit is slightly ludicrous. They burst out laughing. We all know Boris Johnson's relationship with the truth <laughs> is questionable sometimes. They, but it was spontaneous. And I, and I think actually, I mean, one of the reasons I enjoyed the debate was the audience reaction. And I thought there was quite a lot of humour in it. I mean, it was... Um, it was very amusing when um, uh, uh, they were asked um, to name their favourite world leader. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. And Boris Johnson was thinking desperately, saying, I can't possibly name Donald Trump. You could see Who else can I think? And so he very cleverly said, oh, the, the 27 leaders of the EU for giving me a great deal. And then likewise, when, when Corbyn was asked the question, I think we all thought, He's going to blurt out Che Guevara. <laughs> and then he said Antonio Guterres. And for a moment, I think, God, is that the president of Nicaragua? But very cleverly, he, Antonio Guterres, is Portuguese. He's the Secretary General of the United Nations. So he's a figure of world peace and unity. So they dealt with that. But it was funny. It was funny. And I love just watching them because you could see um, um, Corbyn was asked first um, and Johnson was asked second. And you could see that second of fear that went through Boris's eyes. Crikey, I haven't prepared for this one. Yeah. And, and then just 
came out with a very clever answer. But I, I thought, but I mean, we know Boris is funny. There's no question about it. And, and there was a reference to, I think, Julie Etchingham uh, said, referred to Corbyn. Oh, and Johnson, I think, with their spending pledges and said, oh, have you both found the magic money tree? And, and Boris muttered, well, I think Corbyn's got the magic money forest, which I thought <laughs> was very good. And then there was more humour when uh, right at the very end, um, they were asked uh, what Christmas present they would leave for each other under the tree, were they to do so. And Jeremy Corbyn said that he would leave uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol book for Boris so that he could learn why he was Scrooge because of austerity. And then Boris said he would give Corbyn a pot of dams and jam, which I thought was a most Ah, uh, yeah, choice. but you see, um, Boris's dams and jam is very famous. Um, in the Johnson family, they like to give each other something little at Christmas, something that's homemade. Um, and he makes it from his own produce on his, his place in the country. But I don't think he'll have time for doing it at the moment because he's running the election campaign. Maybe Carrie's making it. Well, I, I did wonder. I mean, I mean, uh, f- going on past uh, what reportedly happened at their flat a few months ago, I hate to think what would happen if Boris spilled some of his jams and damn, <laughs> dams and jam on the sofa. There'll be trouble. The Lib Dem leader, Jo Swinson, has launched her party's manifesto amid fears among her supporters that her campaign is faltering. Lib Dem ratings have fallen in recent weeks and Swinson is smarting from being left out of last night's TV debate. Amanda, do you think the Lib Dems are regretting replacing lovable old Vince Cable with bright and breezy Joe? It's certainly looking that way, Simon. I mean, I just, I can't remember the last time that someone arrived on the scene, as um, Joe Swinson did, with, you know, such fanfare. She was young, she was a young mum, you know, she just seemed to have it all. Um, and she did incredibly well in the European elections, at which point her um, polling was around 24%. It's now down to 16 or 15, and it seems to be dropping every day. And I think the problem with her is that she's two-dimensional. She's like a cardboard cutout. And she gets up and says, I'm going to be your next prime minister, which is a ludicrous claim. Um, and I think that there's a, a kind of naive... She's not sophisticated up against um, political campaigners like Boris and like Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and it's just slipping away. And, you know, she's a one, she's like a one-trick pony. You know, we'll stay in the EU. That's it. It's like her earrings, shiny and two-dimensional. I, I, I wonder whether um, they might have been better off going for one of the other Lib Dem frontbench spokesmen, Leila Moran. She's who, brilliant. Who they're using a lot in the election mm. campaign. And, and I can't help remembering that um, Leila was was rated to be one of the front runners until this strange story appeared about her early this year, which was widely reported, which was that some years ago at a Lib Dem conference, she'd been briefly arrested and detained by police after she slapped her boyfriend at a Lib Dem conference. I mean, she confirmed it all on the record. How did that knowing, come out? Well, knowing the Lib Dems reputation for dirty tricks i just can't help wondering whether that story was leaked to stop her running because i think they might have done better to go for Layla moran than joe swinson i think one of the other things that really really irritates me about the lib dems and and swinson is that i get through my uh my mailbox about six lib dem leaflets every day and yeah they're big glossy expensive paper leaflets i mean they've cut down a tree in this election, just in my house alone with these pamphlets, and they're supposed to be a, a, a party campaigning for the, the environment. Just, you know, just stop it. 
Stop leaving them in my house. Sir Anthony Seldon, Britain's leading political biographer, has written a book about Theresa May's torrid two years in number 10. Called simply May at 10, Seldon does not pull his punches. He gave me his candid views about Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. I began by asking Sir Anthony about his recent comment that Theresa May's prime ministership was rather like England's recent Rugby World Cup final, when everything was a disaster from the first few seconds and the scrum collapsed and they lost the game. Is that what happened to Theresa May? Absolutely worse than that, Simon. I mean, it went wrong at the beginning because she had the wrong game plan. There was only one... Uh, match that was um, about to be played, which was getting Britain out of the EU. But she didn't have a plan. She didn't understand how to do it. She didn't consult uh, people. And she went into it like in the Rugby World Cup, uh, playing the last game, which was against New Zealand. She thought she could do it as if she had been Home Secretary, which was her last game. She'd been Home Secretary very successfully in many ways for six years, but you can't do that. I mean, Home Office is so different to Number 10. Home Office is is narrowcast, Number 10 is broadcast. And some of the words that you have used to describe in your book are words like dim, static, stubborn, charmless, needy, ungrateful, a lost government led by a low-grade prime minister. You're known for your fairness in, in your bargains of a prime minister, but why quite so damning? I'm damning because she had one task, to get Britain out of the EU. She could have had a national solution to a national problem. Instead, she opted for a narrow, tribal form of Brexit, and she did so without even consulting people in her own cabinet. You can't do it that way, Simon. It doesn't work like that. I think one of the things that surprised me about your book, you you actually reveal moments of emotion and passion. I think there's an incident with a cabinet secretary over one of the nuclear power stations where... I think you suggest there was even some some swearing going on because she was she had such cold fury. Did that happen? She could be very petulant. She could be very bad-tempered, very narky. I mean, she had many fine qualities too, Simon, but they weren't really the qualities needed of a prime minister from 2016 to 19. It, Britain needed a big-picture person, an ability to persuade... Uh, Europeans persuade parliamentarians. Instead, we had a miniaturist who thought that she could uh, run the country and make Brexit happen from her own office in Downing Street without communicating. I mean, it was a disaster. If this was a restaurant review, you would have probably left after the hors d'oeuvre of her premiership. Would you say that's fair? Simon, I, I don't like to contradict you, but I don't think it is entirely fair because... She did have many considerable qualities that a prime minister needs, including extraordinary hard work, deep love of the nation, deep feeling for the least fortunate in society, a tremendous command of detail. But prime ministers have to have the skills needed by the particular demands of the time that they are prime minister. And when she became prime minister, Britain needed somebody with a big vision. And that was what she didn't have. She did some good things as prime ministers, 
but on the big issue of the day, the plat de jour, she served up a cold turkey. How, how do you think Boris Johnson is doing by comparison? I mean, they're just so different, Boris Johnson, Theresa May. It's hard to think of a more stark contrast in the 55 prime ministers we've had. Theresa May, just a, a miniaturist. She took time to think things through. Boris, he's a big picture person. He he's, loves being in front of the cameras. She hated being in front of the cameras. She would have hated being interviewed by you, Simon. But I'm loving every minute of it. The one thing that May and Johnson have in common in the election campaigns, they're facing the same opponent. And famously, in the 27 campaign, Jeremy Corbyn did much better than expected, gave her a close run for her money. How do you measure him against the leaders of the past, the Blairs, the Browns, the John Smiths? Well, I think the thing about Corbyn in 2017 is that people didn't expect that much and were surprised by the fact that he was a, a very good campaigner. Now, this is different because now there's not a low expectation of him, there's a high expectation. And rather than being up against a very poor can Conservative candidate, he's got Boris Johnson. And he's been so hopeless on Brexit, the key issue of the day. And I think that's his real Achilles heel. So uh, unless he can find some Dan Dare kind of spinach and, uh, that's going to rejuvenate him from his allotment. This will be a rerun of Michael Foote in 1983. I think we're seeing a tired person like uh, Dougal in Magic Roundabout just going round in circles. Crikey, Simon, that is so damning. Calling her a miniaturist. Is that the cruelest condemnation of a politician that you can imagine? And I think it's a little bit harsh as well, you know. I mean, he doesn't seem to be able to find, you know, much um, good to say about Theresa May, but I have to say, having worked with her myself, I think he got it spot on. And he was pretty rough on Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't he? Yeah, that um, it wasn't he getting his metaphors mixed up there. It's Popeye that yeah, eats I, spinach, surely. I, I think it is. It's Popeye. But I, I, I think Jeremy Corbyn may have to eat more than a handful of spinach to turn into Popeye, Dan Dare or anyone else. <laughs> but it plays into the narrative that this is a, an old bloke who looks as though he should be home with his slippers on watching TV. The title of the chapter on Prince Andrew in a scathing new book about the royals by former Liberal Democrat MP and Minister Norman Baker says it all. The Grand Old Duke of Sleaze. Norman told me why he believes Andrew must say where all his money comes from and why he believes the Prince's only way out of the mess he's in is to copy John Profumo, the Tory minister brought down in a 1960s sex scandal who quit politics and devoted his whole life to working for charities in complete anonymity. He is arrogant with a capital A, A for Andrew. And I think he just feels that people are there to serve him and he can decide what he wants. He feels perfectly all right to be rude to his staff, perfectly all right to be rude to courtiers around the place and rude to people who are there to protect him. My book also has a story about when he was at an airport in the Antipodeans when he refused to go through the security check because he was a member of the royal family. What a prat, they said. He should set the example to everybody else. What's the story about Andrew and his money, in your view, Norman? Uh, it doesn't require specialists in mathematics to work out that what he spends is uh, vastly in, ex in excess of what he officially earns. He officially gets a quarter of a million a year from his mother, the Queen, plus a naval pension for £20,000. But he lives a life of a billionaire... 
What we do know is that he spends a great deal of time, has spent a great deal of time, with dodgy dictators in dubious parts of the world for so-called private meetings. One or two of those have come out in great detail. So we know these, these deals go on. We also know, for example, he sold his uh, house at Sunning Hill Park for £15 million. Pounds. You're very rude about his house. You, you actually describe it saying it looked like a, te- a Tesco shop. <laughs> well, I mean, have you seen it? I mean, if you got £12 million, pounds, you wouldn't buy that house, would you? I mean, it's one of the most ugly houses going. But, I mean, it was on the market for years. No one was buying it, and suddenly it sells for £15 million pounds by the son of the Kazakh dictator. He then knocked the thing down without ever living in it. But, Norm- Norman, if, what do you suggest should be done about that? I think the royal family should be treated in the same way as the rest of the public sector, subject to freedom of information. If somebody performs a function uh, which is a public function, whether it's an MP or a councillor, they are subject to freedom of information. You can find out where the money is coming from and what it's being spent on. Those rules don't apply to the royal family. So the answer to all this business with Andrew and indeed with the rest of the royal family is a subject to freedom of information. In your book, you, you say that in the old days, there's all the second, third offspring of the monarch um, could be sent off to, to the old colonies where, and would become a governor general. What would you think would be the suitable location for Prince Andrew? <laughs> well, I think I suggested flippantly South Georgia on the basis that it's, it's unpopulated and very cold and a well, very long way away. But I mean, I've got to be careful because many years ago when I was having a go at Mr Mandelson and I suggested he be sent to become governor general of the Falkland Islands and the week after I got a previous letter from the Falkland Islands and they didn't, they didn't want him down there, so... Do you think this Prince Andrew scandal will speed up the demise of the monarchy? I think it will accelerate uh, bringing the monarchy into the 21st century and making it rather than an imperial monarchy, which we still have. The rest of them have all gone in France and Germany and Russia and Austro-Hungary. It will will make the royal family, in due course, more like the Benelux countries and more like the Scandinavian royal family, where there's very, very few people paid on the public role uh, and the rest of them are all private citizens and they're all subject to proper controls the way that our royal family isn't. Well, I'm guessing <laughs> Norman's a Republican, Simon. <laughs> he, he is a ve- he's a very strong Republican, and he, he's, called, he's called for the abolition of the monarchy more well, than once in the past. But what I found interesting when we started that conversation is, um, I think Norman agreed with me, that the, the Profumo parallel, Profumo was brought down the great Christine Keeler sex scandal yeah. of the 60s, uh, but he completely rehabilitated his his, his uh, reputation over a period of 20 or 30 years by quietly working for homeless and other charities in the East End. And I can't think of any other solution to this for Prince Andrew than that. Well, he's got to, I, I think he's got to disappear one way or another from public, um, from sort of the public eye. But he just, from all of the, the, the people who know him, who describe him, even who people, even the people who respect him, um, he's not a man that likes to be off stage. He likes to be centre stage. He likes riches. He likes to be with billionaires. Um, there's a kind of there's. It, it, I just feel mostly. I feel really, really sorry for the Queen to have to go through all this now, but there is some hope with Prince Charles because he's committed to basically streamlining the royal family. So Andrew and his daughters who don't ever seem to have had any kind of meaningful um, occupation except for being princesses, they're all going to be off stage. And I think that's the way that the monarchy will develop itself and, and take us through the 21st century. But the one thing that Prince Andrew has done is that the, this whole story has completely wiped uh, the election off the front pages. And if you think, Simon, it was the day after Corbyn announced this huge broadband initiative, which was a staggering policy development, that was their big neon light for this election. And then the very next day, it's all about Prince Andrew. 
and we've had this now for four or five days. Do you, do you really think Prince Andrew sacrificed himself to stop <laughs> Corbyn becoming Prime Minister? That's a, that's a conspiracy theory too far, Amanda. It was an observation. I think your comment about, about the, the meaningless occupation, well, of course, being a prince is a meaningless op- occupation, but it means an awful lot to an awful lot of people. Well, it means an awful lot to Prince Andrew. And now, our predictions for the week ahead. Well, mine is not so much a prediction rather than an expectation because this was the point in the last election in 2017 when Theresa May famously announced her dementia tax proposal Mm. and her huge lead over Jeremy Corbyn and Labour slipped away and by the time we got to polling day, she only just scraped over the line. Now, the Conservatives have not announced their manifesto yet. So what I'll be looking for this week is any sign at all that that similar big lead that Boris Johnson has over Corbyn is starting to fall away. Now, personally, I don't think it will. But the Conservatives, knowing what happened to Theresa May last time, they'll be watching that poll graph very carefully indeed. Amanda, what's your thoughts on the week ahead? Well, what I'm really looking forward to, Simon, is the leaders' debate on Friday, which is going to have the two ladies in it. But we shouldn't call them ladies. Um, we've got, so instead of just um, Corbyn and Johnson squaring up against each other, we'll have Joe Swinson. So obviously it's going to be much more civilised and it, reasonable. <laughs> it will be completely different because one of the things that you learn, um, um, anyone who's done any media training, with politicians especially, is no man can be rude to a woman on TV because the women all hate them for it and the men, surprisingly, perhaps not, and the men, uh, they feel protective of the women. And so the tone has got to be so careful. No calm down dears. Um, to, um, Who was to, that? Dave? That was that David, was David Cameron, Cameron, wasn't it? Yes. And, and I think it's going to be especially difficult for Boris because because of the the background noise about him and women, people will be looking very, very carefully to see how he treats women. Obviously, he does have a reputation with women, but he's not known for being rude to women. In fact, he's very charming, I think. Um, oh, so, he was for once very rude about me, Simon. <laughs> well, I'm on his side in that oh, one. stop that. You Does would that, have never called me what he called me. How will, but how will Sturgeon... Let's talk about Sturgeon. How will Sturgeon handle this? Will Sturgeon go after Corbyn because the Labour Party and the SNP hate each other in Scotland or will Sturgeon try to boss Boris around? I think she'll go for both of them because she's got nothing to lose and you know she basically she wants to stay in the EU um, she wants another referendum on independence and she will just keep she will, she's you know what she's like she's so tenacious and grumpy and kind of mean she'll be like this dog just Biting them on the ankles again and again and again. Well, she'll be she'll be egged on by every well by a large by a large part of the population of Scotland. That's for sure. <laughs> I think. Look, it's going to make great watching, and 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 it's you know just going to it'll open the whole thing up. All right, Simon, it's time for it again. What's your topical tune this week? Well, earlier this week, I went to a private concert in Missley in Essex which is to Essex what Greenwich Village is to New York. And the concert was by a young singer-songwriter, Hattie Briggs, who has a voice like Eva Cassidy, and she was discovered by the tenor Alfie Bow while she was busing at Paddington Station. 
Now, the one of the songs that Hattie sung, I thought, wrongly as it turned out, it was called Just Leave, that it might be a Brexit anthem. And then the chorus said, everything feels wrong, this road will lead to somewhere if we just stand and move along. So I thought, it is, it's a Brexit anthem. I was wrong. In fact, the song is called Just Breathe, and it's beautiful. Just Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk. Join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platell. Goodbye. Goodbye.